Well, good morning again, church family. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it to Matthew chapter 1. Thank you to the Crouches for reading our scripture uh, this morning. Uh, Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. As you can tell from around here, we are beginning the Christmas season together. Uh, We're going to celebrate Advent maybe a little differently this year as we light the Advent candles and spend time talking about what each of those candles represent. Today's representation is the word hope. I love the song um, that our worship team sang this morning. It was written by a group called Shane and Shane. The title of the song is You've Already Won. May have been new to many of you this morning, but I want to remind you of the chorus that we sang. It goes like this, and I'm fighting a battle. No matter what comes my way, I will overcome. Don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done, and I'm fighting a battle you've already won. So I thought about that song, all I could think about was the word hope. Is that not what we have in Jesus? I read about a study uh, just this week. It was done several years ago, but there was a group of researchers who performed an experiment to see, in fact, the effects of hope on those undergoing different hardships. Two sets of lab rats were placed in separate tubs of water. The researchers took one set of the rats and dropped them into the water for just an hour. After the hour had passed, they came back by to notice that all of the rats had drowned. The second uh, group of rats, the other set, were also dropped in water, but this time was a little different. This time, they were periodically lifted out of turned multiple times within the hour. Once that initial hour of being periodically lifted out of the water had passed, the researchers left the rats in the water once again to see how long they would swim. This set of rats swam for over 24 hours. Why? Not because they were given a rest, but because they suddenly had hope. Those animals somehow hoped that if they could stay afloat just a little longer, someone would reach down and rescue them. Friends, if rats can do that when it comes to water, how much more should God's people do that as we think about Jesus? As a matter of fact, it made me think about a question. What is hope? Hope is the feeling that what is wanted can be had or that events will turn out for the best. To hope means to look forward to with desires and reasonable confidence. Like those rats hoping that some water, hope is looking to a better future or at least that there will be a future at all. Now we might think about the word hope in several different ways. This might be hoping that our favorite sports team will do better next year than they did this year. We would say we can always have hope, right? This might be hoping that we'll get a Christmas bonus at work this year. May not have ever gotten one before in years past, but hey, we can always have hope. This might be hoping that today won't be the day that your vehicle breaks down on side the road. Probably should have happened already, but hey, today we can always have hope. This could be all sorts of things, graduating high school, getting into that program or school, getting married, the career you've always wanted, the house, the kids, the grandkids, maybe getting to retire one day, even though you can't see it happening. We can always hope, no matter the situation, we can hope. As a matter of fact, hope is important. According to an article by Harvard Health Publishing from the Harvard Medical School, we discover several benefits 
to hope. Let me give you a couple of them that they concluded. Among young adults with chronic illnesses, greater degrees of hope are associated with improved coping, well-being, and engagement in healthy behaviors. Hope protects all ages against depression and suicide. Among teens, hope is linked with health, quality of life, self-esteem, and a sense of purpose, an essential factor for developing both maturity and resilience. Even for those who are older, hope for a better future still produces greater health benefits. Based on this study, hope isn't just an emotion or an illusion. It's not something that we make up in our minds to make us feel better. Hope has been found in scientific studies to be an essential component of our well-being. Those who know Jesus, we don't need a study to tell us that, do we? We've experienced hope like never before as we think about what Christ has done for us. In fact, as we compare hope according to worldly standards versus hope that we have in Jesus, we know that these two things are different. You see, regular hope is really more like wishful optimism. We're not sure if it will happen, but we really hope it will. I read a story that illustrated this. While hunting, Larry and Elmer got lost in the woods. Trying to reassure his friend, Larry said, don't worry. All we have to do is shoot into the air three times, stay where we are, and someone will find us. They shot in the air three times, but no one came. After a while, they tried again, still no response. When they decided to try once more, Elmer said, I hope it works this time. We're down to our last three arrows. (laughs) That may be how we think about it, but hope in Jesus is so much more than wishful optimism. What we have in Jesus isn't optimism, but rather expectation. What we have in Jesus, what we have in Advent is hopeful expectation. We're not hoping that something will happen. We're trusting in what God has already done. Jesus brought a whole new meaning to the word hope. Now, sure, there are lots of things that we can hope for, but none of them compare to the hope that we have in Christ. That's what makes the Christmas story so special the hope we have in Jesus. And not just any hope, lasting hope has finally come. As we enter the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew and we begin to embark on a journey that you are probably very familiar with, a story that you've probably heard since you were a child, we are in fact reminded of the hope that those people were experiencing. All of the things taught in the Old Testament, everything life and their Israel heritage is now finding completion, perfection, fulfillment in Jesus. There was no longer any doubt or confusion. No longer was there waiting and searching. No longer were the prophets of old irrational or irrelevant. The promised coming Messiah was about to enter the world. In fact, I love the way Mark begins his gospel with this phrase, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He said, Andy, why is that so significant? Because if you think about the word gospel in its actual translation, it means good news. Here's what Mark was writing at the beginning of his gospel. He was saying, I have good news for you. Hope has arrived and his name is Jesus. Friends, that's what we get to look at this morning. We get to look at the hope that Christmas brings. So what is it? 
Why does Christmas bring lasting hope? Well, reasons from our text from Matthew chapter one. Here's the first one. Christmas brings hope because the prophecy has been fulfilled. Hope is ours now in Jesus. Why? Because the prophecy has been fulfilled. Look back at Matthew chapter one, verse 22. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. What is it that the Lord was fulfilling? Well, for hundreds of years, God's people had experienced the suffering of sin. They had lived with a religious system that became more of a burden than it could ever be a blessing. They disobeyed God at every chance they got. They went from God blessing to God banishing them all within the same calendar year. The struggle for their lives was real. However, they looked forward to a savior, a coming king that would free the people from their burdens, who would give them rest. And when the angel in Matthew chapter one, that reality has finally come. The prophecies of old about Jesus are no longer of old, they are of now. And listen, there are so many prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, hundreds, so much that we cannot ever begin to explain away who Jesus actually was. But for our conversation this morning. I wanna give you just a few of them about his birth. Listen to this from Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This prophecy should sound familiar. It's the one that the angel reminds Joseph of in Matthew chapter one. Listen to this from Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty Lasting Father, Prince of peace. How about this one from Isaiah 61.1? The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. You say, Danny, why is this significant about the birth of Jesus? Because Jesus quotes this about himself in Luke chapter 4. Or what about this from Micah chapter five, verse two. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Danny, why does that have significance to the birth of Jesus? Because we know from Matthew chapter two that Jesus was born in the little town of Bethlehem. What about this from Hosea chapter 11, verse one? When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I cried. Danny, is that significant to the birth of Jesus? Because in Matthew chapter two, we learn that Joseph escapes from Egypt with Mary and his son by the name of Jesus. What about Numbers 24, 17? I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. You say, Danny, what does that have to do with the birth of Jesus? Well, if you remember in Matthew chapter two, the wise men are led to Jesus by a star in the sky. 
What about Psalm 72? May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. This is why many think the wise men were kings. In Matthew chapter 2, they were presenting gifts to the Son of God. Psalm 72, desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Why is this significant to the birth of Jesus? It's a reference to the shepherds who would come to worship him in Luke chapter 2. How about this in Jeremiah 31? Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. You say, Danny, what does this have to do with the birth of Jesus? Well, in Matthew 2, this is a reference to Herod killing all the baby boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas. Why? Because he wants to get rid of the coming king. Why does it matter that we read all these prophecies? Danny, why are you reading all this different scripture to us from the Old Testament? It's simple. Jesus proves to be the hope that they've been waiting for. Hundreds of years have led up to this moment in Matthew chapter 1, where the king of kings will be born on this earth. No, no more religious efforts, no more rules to be burdened with. Hope, because the prophecy has been fulfilled. Why else does Christmas bring hope? Well, let me show you a second thing. Christmas brings hope because the promise has been found. You say, Danny, what promise? What has been found? Well, look back at Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. The promise has been found. His name is Jesus. What a message for Joseph to receive. Your wife is going to give birth to a child that is not yours, and he will be so great that he will save his people from their sins. The first advent, Christmas, the birth of Jesus, brings hope because Jesus will bring salvation to the world. He will redeem fallen entity. As I'm reading this account in Matthew, and I'm thinking about the Savior who is to come, who will save the people from their sins, all I could think about was a comparison to the fall of man way back in Genesis chapter 3. Where we once fell, where sin entered the world and caused sin for all mankind, Jesus steps in and forgives. He redeems. He's the promise that God made a way even back then for us to be made right with him. Now maybe you're thinking, Danny, what's the big deal? Well, the same promise that they were receiving in the gospel accounts is the same promise that we still receive today. By the way, they didn't just need Jesus to be their savior. We need Jesus to be our savior. Why? Well, I need a savior to stand between me and Satan. I can't defeat him on my own. I can't stand in the face of a crafty enemy. I need a savior who stands. But as a matter of fact, if you were to go back and read in Genesis chapter three, here's what you would discover. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And it was the serpent in all of his craftiness that tricked male and female. Even when they knew they should obey God rather than him, here's what we discover. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The very first sin presented to mankind was presented by this crafty serpent. 
Well, can I tell you, friends, apart from Jesus, that crafty serpent still has dominion over us. But praise God, the crafty serpent no longer has a stronghold on my life or yours. Why? Because we've been redeemed. We've been spared from the grip of Satan himself. We have a greater hope, and his name is mean. He's not still crafty. It doesn't mean he doesn't still try to attack us. As a matter of fact, listen to how the Apostle Paul describes the craftiness of the devil in 2 Corinthians. He says he disguises himself as an angel of light. You know what that means? He uses even good things to tempt us to rebel against God. He lies, he deceives, he hates God, and he hates his people, but he will present himself in whatever way he can to be crafty enough to separate us from the one who means to save us. His power is far greater than I have hope of ever resisting. You too, friend. But aren't you glad that we have a Savior who stands between us and Satan? Let me show you something else, though. I need a Savior to stand between me and self. We may think of the devil as being a mighty foe, and he certainly is. But the account in Genesis chapter 3, that passage shines light on even greater threat that I face every day. It's not Satan, it's me. I am the threat to the life that the Lord wants me to live. As a matter of fact, listen to this from Genesis chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, I want you to process this because I want you to notice the self-centered thoughts and actions of Adam and Eve. It wasn't in this moment the devil who was tricking them. Now it was their very own hearts that were leading them astray. Eve looks at the tree and sees that it is good for food. Well, can I ask you something, friends? What tree in paradise wasn't good for food. In lusting for this fruit, Eve tells us nothing and everything about her own heart. She desires to eat what is forbidden rather than submitting to God's definition of good. Then as she contemplates the fruit's qualities, she sees that it is a delight to the eyes. Can you imagine eating for just a moment the best you can? Can you imagine seeing anything there that would not be a delight to the eyes? Of course it's a delight to the eyes. There's nothing in paradise that wasn't so. But notice again, the selfish desire of Eve to have what she wants even more than what God says is good. Finally, she realizes it would make one wise. God already offered wisdom, his perfect wisdom, to guide and protect them from evil. But our parents reject what God says is good. They wanted their own way over God's way. They wanted self more than a relationship with the creator of the universe. By the way, does this sound familiar with anybody else in the room this morning? I know it does me. So she took and ate, and Adam ate with her. And then the pronouns, by the way, are important here. They made themselves loincloths, and they hid themselves. Until this point, the world of Adam and Eve has been God-centered, but now God is no longer in charge. They are in charge. They recreated a perfect world where God was in control and accepted an imperfect world where self was in control. This same heart problem which began in the Garden of Eden still remains 
today. How many times have you thought, as I have, that if everything would be better, if our circumstances were perfect, then my life would be better? Well, even in paradise, friends, the perfect circumstance, people chose self over God. Even in perfection, people chose sin. If that's not a better picture of you, of how much we need a Savior that stands between me and self, I don't know what could be. I need a savior that stands between me and Satan. I need a savior that stands between me and self. But can I show you one more thing? I need a savior to stand between me and sin. When you read the end of this account in Genesis chapter three, here's what you discover. You discover man and woman denying what they did, passing blame off on something else and hiding from God. Is that not a picture of us in our own sin? Why is it that the one that we should run to most is oftentimes the one we want to run away from quickest? Our first parents rebel against God and devastation immediately blasts out from the center of paradise. Think about it. Adam and Eve are afraid and hide from God. They blame others and life then becomes a struggle. Childbearing becomes terribly painful and a woman's relationship with her husband will always be a struggle between loving leadership and demeaning dominion. The ground itself is cursed so that only with great toil and sweat do we pry from it the very have to survive. And then if that's not bad enough, our bodies rot and return to the mud from which they were made. You know the only thought that comes to my mind from this predicament? Yuck. Yuck is the situation that our sin puts us in. Listen, as sad as the physical consequences of sin might be, the spiritual reality must frighten us far more. God tells us that mankind is now a slave of sin. Many people suppose that they are sinners because they sin. If that were true, then deliverance from being a sinner would be obtained by not sinning anymore. But God insists that we sin because we are sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. It is in our very nature. We sin because of the effect that our sinful nature has on us. When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, they took sin into themselves, fusing its power with their very humanity. Even if they had never would still be sinners, only the promise of God can free the enslaved heart. I cannot rescue my own soul from the dark grip of sin any more than I can cause myself to be born. I need a savior who frees the soul from sin. How often can we empathize with what the apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, verse, t- verse 15. Listen to it. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And listen, when I have done them, like Adam and Eve, I excuse them. I blame others. I tell God that I have no need for his intervention, for I will cover myself with fig leaves. I'll do it on my own. I cannot be bothered with God's righteousness. I am too busy doing things my way. Man, how familiar does that sound? But on Christmas, in a stinking, God's promise of provision has been provided. Friends, that's the hope of Jesus in Christmas. He brings redemption for our souls. We can't defeat the devil. We can't defeat the sinfulness in each of our lives. We need something more. If it was left to us, there would be no hope. But praise God, it's not left to us. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. He wrote, once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our entire world. Hope. Why? 
Because the prophecy has been fulfilled. Hope, why? Because the promise has been found. Jesus has made a way for you and for me. Lastly, I wanna show you this. Christmas brings hope because the process has been formed. You say, Danny, process, what do you mean? Well, look back at Matthew chapter one, verse 23. Behold, and shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, don't miss this, God with us. Think about this name. Think about this phrase, God with us. We have hope because the prophecy has been fulfilled. We have hope because the promise has been found. But friend, we have hope because the process has been formed. The process of becoming more like Jesus every single day. Think about the hope Jesus has brought. He doesn't just give us heaven, he gives us holiness. He doesn't just bring us into eternal security, he brings us earthly sanctification. He doesn't just want us to be with him in glory, he wants us to walk with him today in goodness. God with us means Jesus doesn't just give his life for us, it means he gives his life to us. We can begin to live as Adam and Eve once lived, as God desired for us to live. You say, Danny, in perfection? No, we can live in perfect communion with God. The same way they walked with him. Guess what, friends? You and I can walk with him. That's the hope that Christmas brings. God with us. Say, Danny, what do you mean? The Bible's filled with the truth of the hope that we have in Jesus as he begins a process of making us more like we were created to be. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 6, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Listen to this, so glorify God in your body. Listen to how Paul wrote it to the church in Galatia. He said, I'd with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now listen, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the process. Not living for Danny anymore, living for Jesus. I love how he told the church at Ephesus. He said, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God wants to make us more like Jesus. He sent his son to make us a better way, to show us a better way, to empower us to live a better way. As a matter of fact, listen to these words to the church at Philippi. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But watch this. Our citizenship 
is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Praise God, Jesus has come. Hope has been born and each of us can find it nowhere other than Jesus. Can I leave you with a few thoughts this morning? Say, Danny, I've heard the Christmas story a thousand times. I agree. Say, Danny, I can quote most of it to you right now. I believe you. But when was the last time you thought about this with hope in mind? When was the last time that you thought to yourself, how could all of these prophecies come true? How could I deny that Jesus is who he says he is if all of these things have happened? Friend, listen to me. You can't. As a matter of fact, if you're here this morning and your hope is not in Jesus, let me encourage you for a moment. There is nothing beyond Jesus. Your hope is found in nothing less. Will you today realize just from the simple text of Matthew chapter one that hope is not a figment of your imagination. Hope is a person and his name is Jesus and he's come for you. Will you today, maybe for the very first time, place your hope, your faith in Jesus Christ? That's why the prophecy being fulfilled is so important to our lives. Jesus is who he says he is for you and for me. But can I tell you something else? How many of us know people all around us? We truly understand that Jesus is the promise that we have long been waiting for. How many of us know of the prophecy, know of the promise? How many of us know about Jesus, but when was the last time we told someone else? You say, Danny, my hope is in Christ. If it is, when's the last time you shared it with someone who doesn't have hope in Christ? Can I remind you of something? The birth of Jesus was simply the beginning of a process that we would walk through for the rest of our lives. He brings hope, not just in salvation, but forever. He brings hope, not just in the moment that I place my faith in Jesus, but as I walk in faith with Jesus every single day. Hope is not just for the person who doesn't know Christ hopes for the person who does know Christ. Why? Because everything we have, everything we need only in Jesus. Friends, as you think about the story that you've heard a million times, will you think about it in light of the hope that we have in Christ? Not just for you, but for all those around you who need to hear that same message. Who can you be a messenger to, to bring the hope of Jesus. Listen, I'm going to pray for us in just a moment. We're going to sing a song. We're going to leave this building. We're going to go eat lunch and we're going to carry on with our lives. But before we do, will you respond to whatever it is that God's showing you in Matthew chapter one? Will you respond today with whatever is being revealed to you, your mind, your heart, whatever it is, whatever's being revealed to you from a story that maybe you've heard a thousand times? Will you take a moment and say, Jesus, how do you want me to respond to the hope that we find in you? If it's someone who needs to give their life to Christ, I'll be in that lobby in just a moment. I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna pray. my hope is not in Jesus, what do I do? I'd love to take my Bible and tell you how you can begin following Christ, how you can in fact put your hope in him. If you're a Christian today and you say, Danny, what in the world do I care about the story of Jesus? I have been down that road a million times. Well friend, if that's your attitude, then I think you're missing it. 
Are you still finding your hope daily in the one who died for you? Are you walking daily knowing that the hope that you have is in Jesus alone and that you need him more now than you ever needed him before? Is there someone in your life that you need to share that hope with? Listen, I don't know how he wants you to respond, but I do know that he wants you to. So let me pray. Let's ask the Lord how he wants us to respond to his word this morning. Father, we love you. Thank you. Jesus, you are.